Hello everyone and welcome back to American West History and Lore. I am your host, Paul Workman, and want to thank you for tuning into this episode. And I'm hoping your Thanksgiving went as well as mine did. Uh, me and mine had lots of great food. In fact, from Thursday to Sunday, I was able to enjoy going up to the mountain and chopping down my Christmas tree, two Thanksgiving meals, and one heck of an early Christmas party. But you know what I say, you celebrate with the ones you care about when you can all be together. Uh, though it's nice to celebrate on the actual holiday, it's just another day and we as people can decide and make the best out of any day that we choose to celebrate. But again, I hope yours was great and of course it's time to start gearing up for Christmas so that we can stuff our bullet, stuff our bellies full yet again. You know, I started up this podcast in January of this year with the goal of releasing short informational episodes on ghost towns, one per month. The show was initially titled, What's That Ghost Town? And while I still loved that name, it didn't really encompass all that I really wanted to explore with the show and decided to rebrand it as the American West Podcast. Now, though I wanted to explore the history of the American West, I also wanted to explore the myths and lore as well, because, you know, many times it all ties in together. For instance, if you listen back a few episodes, I did one on Louis Kessberg from the Donner Party, who was accused of killing and eating the flesh of party members, not for the sake of survival, but because he simply enjoyed the taste of human flesh. A lot of that had to do with lore, but it has become part of our American history and therefore deserves to be discussed. So, you know, where I just, so that's where I decided to change my name again, or change the name again to the podcast, to the American West History and, or to American West History and Lore. Uh, now, as I said, my goal was one episode per month. I met that goal and then some throughout the year, as this is episode 17. But my goal for the new year is to release at least one episode every week. I want to keep new content coming at you weekly with hopefully some other surprises along the way, which in due time I hopefully shall reveal. Uh, anywho, I just wanted to give you guys a brief history lesson on the show and a brief synopsis of what I hope to bring to you. Uh, with that said, let's get into date. I can't talk today, guys. With that said, let's get into today's episode, shall we? Now, first topic, I wanted to speak on a subject that is near and dear to myself, and that is preservation of historical artifacts. If you follow the Facebook page, you'll know that I live in Utah, particularly close to Dinosaur National Monument. If you're not familiar with this particular monument, you can refer back to the episode Old Josie and Her Cabin. Anyway, Dinosaur National Monument has so much history encapsulated in it, ranging from dinosaur fossils that are millions of years old to local Western history, such as Josie Bassett's cabin, which may have been a hideout from time to time for the infamous outlaw Butch Cassidy. The Monuments team does a wonderful job of preserving the history of the area, yet there are always those few bad apples that for some odd reason find it necessary to destroy historical artifacts. Such was the case a couple of months ago when two individuals 
decided to graffiti up some petroglyphs within the monument. Luckily, a group of children, and I believe it was one of the kids' moms, uh, saw the vandalism happening and was smart enough to get the license plate number off their vehicle, and they were able to catch the perpetrators. So this incident got me thinking about the amount of artifacts that are here in the American West and how, like it or not, these old ghost towns, cabins, and landmarks, and etc., etc., won't be around forever. Uh, maybe they won't completely decay in my lifetime, but in another generation or two, they may. Weather is probably ghost towns and cabins' worst enemies in terms of trying to preserve them. But weather is nature, and we can't control that. What we can control, though, is our own actions. Uh, look, I get it. People want a quote-unquote souvenir from certain locations, so they so they take a piece of an old building here and there, and before too long, there's nothing left. The same with petroglyphs and pictographs. For some people, or for some reason, people feel the urge to have have to touch and rub them, but what they may not realize is that the oils that are on their hands can speed up the deterioration process, and pretty soon, the image is gone. The reason I wanted to do a quick segment on preservation is, first off, like I've already said, I personally feel it's important. Secondly, I want these historical artifacts to remain on this earth for as long as possible because there's so much amazing stuff around the world, uh, especially here in the American West that so many people, including myself, haven't seen yet. And lastly, I wanted to share some tips on how you and I and everyone else can help preserve our heritage. But, but first, it's important to understand why historical preservation is necessary. There are several benefits to why we should want to preserve historical sites, ranging from personal enjoyment to economic boost. I'm sure there are many people out there who hear of a certain ghost town and say, hey, some of my ancestors lived in that town. And before you know it, they're headed on a vacation to see the town site and learn a little something about their family history. For others, it may just be that there's a good story that happened in the town and it can be as simple as that because some people just like a good story. Or perhaps something significant happened in one of those ghost towns that changed the course of American history. People want to see these things with their own eyes. Economically speaking, when people travel to these historic sites, where do they stay? Where do they eat? The answer is most likely the nearest town. It's good for hotels, and it's good for restaurants, shops, and so on. Okay, now that we've determined why preservation is important and good and all that good stuff, here are some tips on how you can help. One, look, don't touch. Unless otherwise noted by either state, national, or private parks. In this day and age where everyone has a cell phone or a digital camera, it's easy to snap a shot for close-up examination or to, simply, or to simply refer back to it a later date, you know. Uh, number two, you can volunteer for preservation and restoration projects. Just head to your local Forest Service or BLM offices, uh, your local museums, you know, whatever you have for that kind of historical preservation in your town. I mean, if you have any sort of historically significant area where you live, ranging from small rock monuments to national parks, take a stab at getting involved. It could be good for you mentally and physically. And number three, keep being a tourist. 
That's super important. The more you visit and respect these historical sites, the more they will be taken care of. The fact is, the tips I've just stated are common knowledge. It's also called common courtesy and respect. And anywho, just wanted to take a few minutes to discuss this matter. Because hey, if we don't try our best to preserve our history, we lose our history. Alright, moving on to our feature story for the episode, The Lost Mine of John D. Lee. I came upon this legend concerning John D. Lee when I was reading a book entitled Lost Gold and Silver Mines of the Southwest by Eugene L. Coronado. Just a side note on this book, my edition appears to be the 1996 edition. The book was originally published under the title Lost Desert Bonanzas in 1963. It uh, doesn't really mean anything other than that now. It doesn't really apply to the rest of the story. But uh, it in it, it tells a story of John D. Lee and his lost mind, and then credits the source of the story, which was an article written for Desert Magazine by Charles Kelly in its August of 1946 issue. Uh, with a little digging on the web, I managed to find an archived copy of this issue along with what I believe to be the whole back catalog of the magazine. And believe me, this, this is a goldmine in itself of information. And I plan on perusing through some of these issues because it seems like it was a phenomenal magazine. And maybe we'll cover some of those stories in the future episodes. Uh, having said this, uh, Kelly's article entitled John D. Lee's Lost Gold Mine will be the primary source for our discussion as it's probably the best source of information concerning this legend. Uh, I say legend because there really isn't, from at least what I can tell, much documentation that Lee really was a treasure hunter. A lot of information simply points to a lot of hearsay and stories passed on. So it, when I quote some of the, uh, the sections from the, uh, from the article, you'll probably hear some papers rustling, so... So forgive me for that. But Anyway, so who is John D. Lee? Lee's name is synonymous with the Mountain Meadows Massacre, a horrific incident where about 120 immigrants were massacred by a group of Mormons and Paiute Indians. The migrants were from Arkansas and were headed to California. There is a fair amount of information that goes along with the story, and most likely we'll cover the whole incident in more detail in a future episode. But for the sake of sticking to the legend of Lee, we will condense it. Uh, the gist, however, is this. At the time of the massacre, there was a lot of hostility between the Mormons of the Utah Territory and basically the rest of the United States of America. And the Mormons didn't care much for migrants passing through. Uh, Brigham Young, president of the LDS Church and governor of the Utah Territory at the time, called for all who passed through the territory to have a written pass. Uh, the Fancher Party from Arkansas didn't have a pass. Uh, when the Fancher Party reached Mountain Meadows near Cedar City, Utah, on September 7, 1857, they were attacked. 
Some accounts say it was by Paiute Native Americans. Some say it was Paiutes as well as Mormons disguised as the Paiutes. Uh, the Fancher party formed a circle with all of their wagons and was able to defend themselves for four days until September 11th. John D. Lee was sent to lead the fight, but they had derived this plan. Uh, the plan was to basically tell the Fancher party that if they were to surrender, that they would be free to go and they would escort them away. They agreed, the Fancher party agreed, and in an act of betrayal, Lee's men turned on each member of the Fancher party, save around 17 children who they thought were too young to recount the incident if ever asked about it, and they massacred these people. Two days later, a letter arrived from Brigham Young to let the Fancher party go about their business and on their way to California, but obviously it was too little too late. Uh, being as Lee was the leader of this heinous crime against humanity, he was essentially the only one ever punished for it. And after two trials and 20 years, Lee was found guilty and executed by a firing squad at Mountain Meadows, the place where the incident had taken place. So what was Lee doing between 1857 and 1877? Well, as I just mentioned, we know he had two trials, one in 1874 and another in 1877. In the early 1870s, Lee was assigned to establish a ferry crossing at Perea Crossing, which is now known as Lee's Ferry. But in Charles Kelly, Kelly's article, he states that, quote, Even before locating at the ferry, Lee seems to have done some prospecting in the canyon. According to persistent rumor, he was the first white man ever to visit the Havasupai Indians. Taken captive by them, he is said to have lived in Havasu Canyon for two years, during which time he discovered several mineral deposits and built a crude forge in which to test the ore. This is believed to have been in 1859 through 1861, when he, is, when he considered it still unsafe to visit his wives and families. Little is known of his movements between 1859 and 1872. So there you have it. Not much was known about his whereabouts between 1859 and 1872. And just as a side note, the quote mentioned wives. Lee was a polygamist, as it was a common practice for the Mormon church at the time. Uh, Kelly continues by stating, quote, After moving to the ferry, Lee spent most of the winter months prospecting, working his way down into Grand Canyon at various places over what are now well-known trails. A few years ago, I visited Lee's Ferry with Robert B. Hildebrand, who, as a boy of 15, lived with Lee during the part of 1875 and 1876. Lee took young Hildebrand along on several prospecting expeditions, mostly in northern Arizona. He also believed Lee had found a rich mine somewhere in Grand Canyon, but never learned its location. So with Kelly's first-hand account from Hildebrand, we presume he's telling the truth about his adventures with Lee. As with every good Lost Mine story, Hildebrand was never in the know of where the mine actually was. As for direct evidence from Lee himself as to whether a mine ever existed, Kelly makes the following statement, quote, Most of his writings have been destroyed or lost 
and I have been able to find but one reference to any mine he may have discovered. This is in a letter written to one of his daughters, Amora, while he was imprisoned in Salt Lake City about 14 months before his execution, while he still had hopes of being freed. In this he said, quote, I have just received a letter from Emma, Emma was one of his wives, and one from Judge Spicer asking my permission to allow him horses to prospect with, and to tell him where those ledges was or is from which I brought in some. I wrote back to them saying I did not want anything to do with Spicer's fortune hunting, that I wanted Ralph and John to cross the river and go to work at my place, the Moeba, lest someone would jump the claim and cause us trouble. End quote. First off, who is Judge Spicer? Wells Spicer was John D. Lee's attorney. And how's that for sticking it to old Lee? I mean, here's Spicer, who unsuccessfully represented Lee, and then, if we're to assume a gold mine is what they're talking about, he says, hey, I know I didn't get the job done at proving you innocent, but hey, will you tell me where the treasure is and lend me the supplies to get it? That's too crazy. As the article starts to wind down, Kelly introduces another player, one who had actually played a large role in the Mountain Meadows Massacre along with Lee. The section states, Some rich specimens in his collection at the ferry, together with many stories already in circulation, started an immediate hunt for the Lee Mine, the exact location of which Lee had never revealed, even when faced with certain death. The first search, according to George Wharton James, was conducted by a man named Brown, who claimed certain knowledge of seven cans of gold dust buried near the mouth of the Little Colorado River. This quote-unquote Brown was Isaac C. Haight, who traveled under the name to hide his identity as leader of the Mountain Meadows Massacre. He had been hiding with Lee, had crossed at the ferry many times, and was in a good position to know about Lee's prospecting activities. Hiring Sam Bass as a guide, he tried to find the location but ran into difficulties and had to turn back. Later, he had another man succeeded in reaching the spot, but after much searching found neither the buried gold, not any trace of mineral. Now, even though Lee was the only one ever punished for the Mountain Meadows Massacre, Haight probably should have been right there with him as he helped orchestrate the attack on the, Fran the Fancher party. Though Haight was indicted for the massacre, he was successful in going into hiding. Uh, clearly, though, he was hanging out with Lee when he was in hiding. Kelly then goes on to talk about how after Lee's execution, one of his wives, Emma, who was mentioned earlier in Lee's letter to his daughter, remarried a man by the name of Franklin French, who just so happened to be a, you guessed it, a minor prospector. Emma, it sounds like, really wanted to get her hands on her deceased husband's riches, if there were any such riches. She told her new husband all she knew, though it was very, very little, about Lee's mine. Uh, French, of course, jumped on this and made several trips to the Grand Canyon, but to no avail, he never found Lee's treasure. 
To conclude, Kelly talks in the beginning of the article about a man by the name of Josiah F. Gibbs, an author who wrote a quote-unquote fictional story called K-Witch's Goldmine. Kelly states that, In a fictional story entitled K-Witch's Goldmine, Josiah F. Gibbs describes a rich find of placer gold near Vulcan's throne. This location was revealed to a certain white man visiting Lee's Ferry by K-Witch, a Navajo Indian, and a fortune in gold dust was taken out about 1885. Before his death, Gibbs told me this part of the story was true and that he personally knew the man who took the gold. To conclude this article, Kelly says that he believed Gibbs' story, especially because he had known him for several years. Maybe Lee did have a mine somewhere in the Grand Canyon. After all, this isn't the only tale of treasure being found. I mean, we just talked about Josiah F. Gibbs, and even though he wrote this fictional book, he claims that the part about finding the gold there was real. So if we're to believe Gibbs, then there might certainly be something there. Anyways, guys, that's going to do it for this episode of American West History and Lore. Thanks for tuning in, and remember, the best way to support the show is to share the show. Leave a review and a rating if you feel like it. Uh, that would really help out as well. Uh, whatever platform you listen to it on, iTunes, Google Play, we're actually now on iHeartRadio, and then we've been on Stitcher for a little bit. So go check us out on all those platforms. Uh, feel free to send me show suggestions at thepkworkman at gmail.com. Uh, show notes for this episode are at mysteryandhistory.blogspot.com. We'll catch you on the next episode. Take care. <laughs>